You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We saw last time that biology is the study of life. Remember, we defined that as being life by certain properties. We talked about growth, metabolism, adaptation, and inheritance. Now, naturally, we've been curious about these living things in our world. For all of our history, I think we've been curious. And people have been curious not just about what they are, but what they're made from. What does this plant consist of? What is inside of this animal? What is inside of me that makes me work? And so, for all of the history of biology and our interaction with the living world, we've had people dissecting and cutting apart and looking inside of living things. So coming down to the 19th century to present day, we've had a long history of describing the structures of life. What is life made of? What are the parts that make it up? Now, in following this sort of reductionist pathway that I want to lead you on, especially this methodological reductionist pathway, because that's, as I said, the way that modern science has used to be able to focus its attention on the living world, in following that pathway, let's think for a minute about looking at the parts of living things. It wasn't until the development of the microscope by Robert Hooke, oh, I think late in the 17th century, that we got our first look at things beyond what our eye can actually see. What our eye can see is limited, of course, in terms of resolution. There are things that are smaller than our eye can see that we didn't know about until the development of this instrument. Robert Hooke was able to take two lenses and put them together and make observations for the first time that extended the limit of the eye, that extended the ability of the biologist to see, to make observations. One of the first things that Hooke looked at was a thin slice of cork. He took a cork and a sharp knife and sliced off a thin bit of it and looked at it under his microscope. And cork, of course, comes from the bark of a tree. And what Hooke saw when he looked at this thin slice of cork were little walled-off structures that he described as being akin to monastic cells, to the rooms in which monks live in a monastery. And so he called them cells. He named them cells in analogy to that monastic lifestyle. And we still use that same word today. We call them cells. And in fact, when he started looking at other living things, he found that wherever he looked, he saw cells under the microscope. Now, we can't see the cells of things with our eye. If I take a segment of this plant and I look at it by eye, I cannot see the cell structure in it. But if I take a small slice from it, maybe without harming the plant, or take one leaf off the tree and put it under certain conditions and look in a microscope, I can see the structure that Hook saw, these little cell-like compartments that make up the structure of that plant. Same is true for animals, same is true for everything in the living world, except for one thing, and that is the world of viruses. We won't be talking much about viruses during this theory, but I'll just use this opportunity to say that viruses, which are my research specialty, are the only things which even have a semblance of life that are not made of cells. 
Now, this idea of cells being part of the structure was very fascinating to the biologists once they got a hold of this instrument, the microscope. Remember, the microscope is still one of the primary instruments of biology. Now, of course, we have much more powerful microscopes, and we've even gone beyond the microscope that uses light as an illuminating source to use electrons as an illuminating source, which even allows us to see smaller and smaller details. But the idea of being able to see beyond the limits of the eye was fascinating to biologists. And so they began to look at everything. And the question was, where do these cells come from? Do cells somehow just come into existence when something begins to live? Or are they already there? And it wasn't until the 19th century, in fact in 1838, that two workers, Schleiden and Schwann in Germany, proposed for the first time what we call the cell theory. These workers proposed the following, that all cells come from pre-existing cells. Let me say that again. All cells come from pre-existing cells. All life is made of cells, again with the exception of viruses, and all cells come from pre-existing cells. Now, as a theory, that doesn't sound like it's very powerful, but it was at a time when the ideas of origins of life were and included the idea of origin of life from inanimate matter, so-called spontaneous generation. Experiments were done by a variety of 19th century scientists, which included Louis Pasteur, to prove that spontaneous generation doesn't occur. In other words, that living things do not come from inanimate matter. So the cell theory was part and parcel of that 19th century argument about origins of life. Cells come from pre-existing cells. What is a cell then? A cell is then the basic unit of living systems. Sometimes there are things which only consist of one cell. There are one-celled creatures, such as bacteria, such as the yeast, such as a variety of protozoan forms like amoeba. It was Anton van Leeuwenhoek in Holland who first took a drop of pond water and put it under his microscope and observed for the first time the world of microbiology. All sorts of one-celled organisms swimming through his drop of pond water. And it was from that that was born the science that we now call microbiology. But all things are cells, whether they are one cell or like ourselves and the plants and animals we see around us today, whether they are many cells working together, a multicellular creature. Now, when we look inside of a cell, again following our reductionist paradigm, we look inside of a cell, we see what is in there. What could be inside this cell? It's not just a walled-off compartment, but there are things inside of it. Some cells are very simple. For instance, the bacterial cells, bacteria such as E. coli or Bacillus subtilis that make up the soil bacteria, a variety of pathogens that we have to deal with in our lives, like the pneumonia bacteria. All of these bacterial forms are what we call prokaryotes. The name is prokaryote. And they have a very simple cell structure. It consists of an outer membrane, and I'll come back to what the membrane does for a cell in a moment. And inside that cell is basically just a solution, a very viscous solution. But in that solution, which we call the cytoplasm of the cell, exist all of the molecules, all of the structures that make the cell what it is. There are no internal structures inside that cell, no internal membrane systems. There are only the molecules and their collections of structures which make the cell work. Such cells are called prokaryotes and have no nucleus. It's their characteristic. The rest of the world, everything other than bacteria, are cells that have a nucleus in them. They are called eukaryotes. 
The nucleus inside the cell contains in it structures that are part and parcel of the genetic information of that cell. The cell also contains other structures in it that have membranes surrounding them. For instance, there are mitochondria in the cell. Mitochondria are little tiny what are called organelles in the cell that in this case are responsible for generating energy. Every cell around us that we see that is a eukaryotic cell has a mitochondrion. Otherwise, it would not be able to generate the energy it needs for life. Some of the cells we see around us here in the desert, those cells that are present in the green plants we see, have an additional energy generating organelle. It's called a chloroplast. And that energy generating organelle allows those green plants to harvest sunlight and take the energy from sunlight and convert it into chemical energy in the form of sugars. If it weren't for those organelles in the plants, we couldn't exist on this planet. Plants are related to us in that fashion in that they capture the energy of the sun, which is our primary source of energy really, in the end. They capture that energy and convert it into a form that we can use or that some other animal can use, which we then will wind up eating. We consume the energy of the sun as it's captured by the plants. And the thing that captures that energy in the plant cell is a tiny organelle called a chloroplast. So the cells now contain a nucleus, mitochondria, a chloroplast. A variety of other structures are found inside of a cell which make a cell what it is. Now, what defines the cell? When I said Hooke first looked at his cork structure, he saw these tiny units that he called cells, little walled-off compartments. What defines the cell is that barrier between the cell and the rest of the world. The barrier is really a membrane, a membrane that divides what's inside the cell from what's outside the cell. The membrane itself is made of material that is impermeable to water in effect, although water molecules can get in and out of the cell by some process which is really still not understood completely. But in effect, it's a barrier to the aqueous environment outside and the aqueous environment inside. The properties of that barrier are very interesting. The fact that the barrier exists between our cells and the outside world means that we have a series of communication issues that arise. Cells must be able to communicate with their environment. They must be able to take food in. They must be able to send waste out. The cell, if it's a single-celled organism, must be able to communicate with other cells of its kind. The cell, if it's part of a multicellular organism, has to be regulated with the other cells in that organism to do its proper job. So, for instance, our liver cells have to be regulated to do their proper job in concert with our brain cells that have to be regulated to do their proper job. So each cell has this communication problem that's defined by the barrier that exists between what's inside and what's outside. Now, we said that the properties of life include growth, include metabolism, adaptation, and inheritance. Well, metabolism is what we're just talking about. Taking in food from outside, throwing waste back into the environment. That's metabolism, using the nutrients of the environment. Whether those nutrients come in the form of sunlight to a plant or in terms of plants to us as food. Growth is another question. Growth means to go from immature forms or smaller forms to larger forms. And if everything is made of cells, and if we all began as a single cell, as I'll argue in a moment, then we go from a single cell to multiple cells by a process we call growth. At the heart of that growth process, that single cell that we began as must divide into two cells. 
Those two cells then must divide into four, four into eight, etc. This process of growth and division of cells has been observed since we had the ability to look at cells in the microscope. And as our microscopic observations have improved, our understanding of how that process of growth and division has also improved. Now what we know about the process is as follows. There are two kinds of division that take place. Let's use ourselves as the example. Two kinds of cellular division that take place in our bodies. The one kind of cell division is given the name mitosis. Mitosis is a process whereby a single cell is going to divide to produce two identical cells to itself. So the single parent cell will have two identical daughter cells. When I say the word identical, I'm now meaning the word genetically identical. And we'll come to what we mean genetically in a moment. The two cells divide by the process of mitosis. Now, during that process of division, if we look inside the cell with the microscope, what we see happening is really a division of the nucleus of that cell. The nucleus divides into two new nuclei. When we look into the nuclei of that cell, we see the behavior of some very interesting structures which have been called chromosomes. The word chromosome simply means structures that are very colorful when treated with certain dyes. They have an intense staining property with certain dyes. They are chromophoric. They have a property of picking up these dyes and being intensely stained. Usually the dye that's used is one that stains the chromosomes blue. So the early microscopists named these structures chromosomes, colorful bodies, in effect. And if you watch the behavior of the chromosomes, you notice that the heart of cell division is really what happens to these chromosomes. There are stages of cell division where the chromosomes are all together, and then at one point they separate and pull apart, and two new nuclei condense from them. So we see that the heart of cell division is really this dance of the chromosomes that takes place. In mitosis, the two new cells that develop have exactly the same number of chromosomes as the original cell and are therefore genetically identical to the original cell. Now this is the process of division that we use to grow from that single cell to an embryo, to a fetus, to a small child, to a younger child, larger child, to an adolescent, to an adult. That's the process that is going on during growth. The other kind of process is called meiosis. Meiosis is a cellular division also, but we only use it for very special cells. Organisms that reproduce sexually, like ourselves, only use meiosis to make the cells that we use for reproduction. The gametes, as they're called, in our case, eggs and sperm. The process of meiosis looks somewhat similar to mitosis. It's a division of the cell, but if we look at the events in the nucleus, we see that there's some major differences because the products of meiosis are not simply identical cells. The two nuclei of these two cells that are produced from the division of meiosis are different. They have fewer chromosomes. In fact, they each have half the number of chromosomes. Let me introduce a term for you. We say that all of the cells of our body are diploid. By diploid, we mean that all of the cells of our body have two each of every chromosome. Two each of every chromosome means that in humans we have 46 chromosomes, 23 pair. In the process of mitosis, the divisions that are involved in growth, every single cell that develops from there on has 46 chromosomes. But in meiosis, the end products, the cells that develop, will have half that number. They will be called haploid. 
and we'll only have 23 chromosomes, one of each instead of two of each. A very important distinction between the two processes. Now, those cells that are developed by meiosis are used then for reproduction of the organism. Two haploid gametes will fuse during the process of fertilization to make a new diploid individual that will be a single cell, which will then, by a process of mitosis, grow and develop into the new organism. So this is what we know at this point about the process of growth of an organism. But the question is, what did we know in the middle of the 19th century when Gregor Mendel was about to do his experiments? Now, with Mendel, we have the development of the science of genetics. So our question really is, what did people think was happening during inheritance before Mendel? In other words, we knew that life involved inheritance. But what were the ideas about how it was that you'd plant a seed in the ground and up would come a plant that looked like the original? Or how it was that two people would have a child who somehow resembled their parents, was in fact a human but had resemblances to the parents? Well, the thinking about this goes all the way back to the ancients. Aristotle would have known, for instance, about the idea of the homunculus, the idea that buried within the sperm of the male in the human was actually a tiny human fully formed and ready to be grown. That was an, a very prominent idea in the ancient world that all of life began in this way that the sperm cells in fact had these small buried individuals in them. By the time of the Middle Ages it was assumed that much of what we see around us in terms of inheritance came about by what are called acquired characteristics. Now this was an important idea. People thought that for instance if the parent had a certain characteristic and acquired it during its life, that means had changed somehow, that the child would have that characteristic. Now, there was a logical inconsistency to this argument. For instance, if as a young person I lost an arm and then I went on to have children, it would only follow from acquired characteristics that my children should not have an arm. So there were some logical errors with this, but it was thought that somehow that was bypassed in nature and acquired characteristics worked. Well, people did experiments in the 18th century, early 19th century that basically disproved acquired characteristics as a way of thinking about inheritance. But the other prominent theory at the time of Mendel was called blending inheritance. Now, this was the idea that the characteristics of the two parents somehow blended together into the offspring. Now think about, for instance, the cross of flowers with different colors. If you look at snapdragons, for instance, in nature, and you take a white-colored snapdragon and a red-colored snapdragon, and you cross them, the offspring of that will be all pink snapdragons, as though the colors of the flower have blended white and red to make pink. And this was a very prominent view in the middle of the 19th century when Mendel began his experiments in genetics. Now, let's talk for a minute about who was Gregor Mendel. Gregor Mendel was born in Germany and at a very young age decided to become a priest. He joined the Augustinian order and was ordained actually at quite a young age for the time. He was ordained before he was 25 years old. He was sent to the monastery in Brunn, Austria by his order. Now, many modern biology texts, especially texts we use in freshman courses, write about a single paragraph on Mendel. And they mention a couple of things. They mention that he flunked his science exams, and they mention that he worked in this monastery growing his pea plants. And it's almost as though in the description of Mendel in the textbooks that you see, he came to these ideas by accident that he had, the ideas of genetics. Well, let me set the record a little bit straight. There are a couple of major biographers of Mendel from whom my information comes. 
And it's clear that Mendel was not the accidental scientist that he's portrayed. If you actually look at what he did as classwork, he actually didn't flunk his science work. What he failed to do was pass his qualifying examinations for his teacher certificate. He had been sent to the universities, he had been trained in all of the scientific disciplines, he was brought back to Brunn, and he needed to pass a qualifying exam the first time out to get his teaching certificate. And that's the one that he didn't pass the first time. Now, let's talk a little bit about the monastery in which Mendel was living in Brunn. He was not an isolated person growing peas and doing his science while the rest of the monks in the monastery went about their duties. In fact, the entire monastery in Brunn, the Augustinian monastery, was populated by scientists. All of the priests who were there were either physicists or astronomers or chemists or geologists, and all of them were teaching at various schools in that area of Austria and at universities. So the monastery was actually, we might say, a hotbed of scientific activity, of investigation. So Mendel was in an environment dominated by scientific thinking. In fact, we think that it's this influence of the physical sciences on him that lead to one of the critical decisions that he made in doing his experiments, which I'll come to in a moment. So Mendel, as a scholar now, is placed in this environment, not in isolation, but in a community of scholars. Now, what exactly did Mendel do? Well, Mendel decided to work in the area of how plant hybrids work, how when one crosses or makes defined genetic or defined crosses between plants, what one sees as the outcome. Remember, we had this blending inheritance theory. Now, Mendel chose as his organism to work with the common garden pea. Now, this turned out to be an excellent choice of experimental organisms for a variety of reasons. Number one, pea plants are very easy to grow. As any of you who've tried this know, you just simply put them in reasonable soil, you water them, and they grow very rapidly. So they're easy to grow and manipulate, grow in a very small defined space. And he had a garden plot at the monastery in which he did his experiments. Secondly, peas have a very short generation time. One of the problems with doing genetics on humans is that our generation time is as long as the generation time of the experimenter. But pea plants turn out to have a generation time of a matter of weeks. So in a growing season, Mendel could observe several generations of his experimental organism, as opposed to longer-lived organisms. Third property, peas produce a large number of offspring. You take a pea pod and it has several peas in it, so from one plant, Mendel could get hundreds of peas, which are in fact the seeds of the pea plant, and therefore the next generation. So Mendel could observe literally hundreds of offspring, if he wished. Now, I'll come back to why he wished to do that in a moment. Notice that for humans, the number of offspring we have make observing an individual cross rather limited. Ten is already a large size for a family of humans. Ten offspring. The fourth property of peas, that Mendel exploited was the fact that he could manipulate crosses between the plants. He could cause two pea plants, he could physically fertilize the flowers of one pea plant with the pollen from another pea plant. And he could do this in an experimentally reducible fashion. He actually took a feather and he would tease some pollen from one pea plant and place it on the flowers of the other pea plant he wished to cross fertilize. Now the fifth property of peas that he exploited was that Previous to his work, people had been working with garden peas for years. They had developed many varieties of peas. In fact, these different varieties of peas all had different characteristics or traits. 
So Mendel could get from breeders around Europe, in fact he sent to one particular breeder in Germany and got some others from a breeder in England, sent to them for particular plants with various specific properties. For instance, plants with different flower color, plants with different height, plants that would grow tall versus short, plants with different kinds of pea color, some with green peas, some with yellow peas. A variety of different traits that were present in these different plants. And the interesting thing and the most important thing about these traits was that for a given plant with a given set of traits, the traits always bred true. So a plant with purple flowers would always produce offspring with purple flowered plants. A plant with white flowers would always produce offspring with white flowered plants. Very important. So Mendel chose an experimental system that was ideal. So what is it that Mendel did experimentally? Well, Mendel took individual plants and crossed them. For instance, Mendel took a purple flowered plant that always produced purple flowers in its offspring and crossed that with a white flowered plant that always produced white flowers in its offspring. Now, he made a couple of critical decisions here. He chose to cross only plants that differed by one and only one trait, to begin with at least one trait. So for instance, flower color, or pod shape, or pea color, or something like that. He called this a mono-hybrid cross, hybrid being the name for crossing two pure breeding species, or true breeding species, as they were called by the botanist. He called this a mono-hybrid cross. Now, at this point, Let's introduce some terminology that Mendel chose to use and that we still use in genetics today. First of all, the traits that Mendel observed. The flower color, the pea pod shape, the pea shape. Those characteristics were called, in fact, traits. And they come in different fashions. For instance, when one looks at a trait which one always sees in the offspring, which overrides another trait, we call that relationship between those two traits the dominant trait. So for instance, purple flower color turns out to be dominant over white flower color. Green pea color turns out to be dominant over yellow pea color. The trait that is overridden is given another name. It is called the recessive trait. So white is recessive to purple in peas. So we have traits. The various forms that the traits come in in the plant Mendel called alleles. The word is allele. Alleles are different versions of a trait. There is the purple allele, there is the white allele. Now, the way a plant appears to us, that is, it has purple flowers versus the plant with white flowers, is called the phenotype of the plant. The phenotype. And remember, these are organisms which are diploid, like ourselves. That means they have two of each chromosome in them. And we'll come back to chromosomes in a minute. Now, let me make it clear. Mendel did not know about chromosomes when he was doing his work. Chromosomes weren't discovered until the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, when microscopy and cytology, as it's called, that is staining of cells to see the structures, got to be a sophisticated process enough to see the chromosomes. So Mendel didn't know about chromosomes, but we do. So I'll mention ploidy, diploid, cells and say you'll remember that that means the cell has a pair of every chromosome. So these were diploid cells. Now Mendel observed how the plants looked and he called that the phenotype. He then observed their genetic makeup and I'll tell you how he did that in a moment. And he called the genetic makeup their genotype. 
So we had phenotype, which is how they look, and genotype, what is their genetic makeup. So a plant can look the same as another plant, but have a different genetic makeup. For instance, one plant can look purple and have purple flowers, and yet have, in its diploid set of genes it's going to have, have two of the alleles for purple in terms of that color trait. It will look purple phenotypically, but it will have two of the same allele. We call that kind of plant a homozygous plant. We say it's homozygous dominant. Now, if a plant has one purple allele and one white allele, it will look purple because purple is dominant to white, but it will have two different alleles, and we call that plant heterozygous. Obviously, the white plant will have two white alleles, and we'll call that homozygous recessive. So those are some of the genetic terms that Mendel used, and the most important term he used was defining a new word. The new word is called the gene, and by gene, Mendel meant the unit of heredity. The unit of heredity. Now we'll see that modern biology has been a history of basically redefining that word. Mendel defined it as a unit of heredity. Later we'll define it as a location on a chromosome. Later we'll define it as DNA. Later we'll define it as a sequence of DNA. The history of biology is the history of the definition of modern biology anyway, a definition of this word gene. Mendel described it as the unit of heredity. As we step forward in history, we'll see that later it becomes described as a place, a location on a chromosome. Later it becomes described as DNA itself, still later and more recently described as a sequence of bases in DNA, but that's yet to come in our discussion. For now, Mendel describes the gene as a unit of inheritance, a unit of heredity. Now Mendel did two kinds of experiments. He did the experiment I described before, the so-called monohybrid cross, in which he took a purple-flowered plant and crossed it with a white-flowered plant, one trait differing. He also did an experiment called a dihybrid cross, where he took a plant that differed in two traits, say height and flower color, and crossed a purple tall plant with a white short plant. So that's called a dihybrid cross. Now, the key to Mendel's experiments is to understand that he quantitated his results. Now, watch what I'm saying. He actually counted offspring. Previous plant breeders did not bother counting the offspring. They simply crossed plants and observed that the offspring had a certain characteristic. So, for instance, if you cross the purple-flowered pea plant with the white-flowered pea plant, you got all purple flowers. Then, if you took those offspring and produced progeny from them by interbreeding them, you got some purple offspring and some white. You got very few white, but mostly purple. So, the experimenters concluded that, well, the white ones were just sort of random accidents that happen in nature, that most of them were purple, and still the blending kind of idea of purple being the color still kind of went on, okay? So, Mendel decided to count. Now, why is that important that Mendel decided to count, to get numbers? Remember, we're in the 19th century. Remember that physics is the queen of the sciences. Remember that physics uses the language of mathematics. So quantitation is critical in science if you're a physicist. To biologists, such quantitation was not known. But Mendel is in the company of other scientists who are quantitative. So he counts. He makes the decision to quantify his offspring. 
Here's a description of one of Mendel's early experiments. He takes a purple flowered pea plant that is true breeding, meaning its offspring always have purple flowers, and he crosses that to a white flowered pea plant whose offspring always have white flowers. He gets the offspring, and every offspring that he counts, which in this particular case may be three or four hundred different peas that he plants and grows up in his garden, all of them have purple flowers. He calls this the first filial generation, or F1 generation. So Mendel says, okay, now let's see what happens if I cross two members of the F1 generation to each other. An experiment, by the way, we don't do with humans. That's called incest. So we don't cross F1 generation members in humans. It's not something we can do. But we do this in plants. So Mendel crosses these plants, and he observes the F2 generation. That means the second filial generation. So he's now two generations from the parent plant. And what he does is he counts the number of kinds of plants. So Mendel might take 400 seeds from the F2 generation and plant them and grow them up. And he finds out that in the 400 seeds, about 300 of them are purple and about 100 of them are white flowered. And Mendel makes a conclusion from this, this and many other experiments like it. Mendel draws what is called the first law of heredity. And Mendel's first law of heredity speaks about the behavior of the alleles, say, for purple flower color and white flower color. Mendel says the allele for purple flower color behaves during reproduction independently from the allele for white flower color. He says these alleles segregate in the offspring independently. This means that the white flower colored allele that you saw in the parental generation returns in the second generation later, the F2, returns in a quantitative ratio of one white flowered plant to three purple flowered plants. In Mendel's view, a rigid mathematical description, remember the language, mathematical description of the results of the cross. Mendel then goes on to do the same kinds of experiments with now dihybrid crosses. He takes a tall purple flowered plant and crosses it to a short white flowered plant. And then he observes what happens in the offspring. Again, the first generation, they're all tall and purple because purple is dominant to white, tall dominant to short. In the second generation, the F2, some are tall and purple, some are white and short. Interestingly enough, some are tall with white flowers and some are short with purple flowers. Neither of those traits were present in the parental generation. Mendel has produced new phenotypes that were not present in either of the two parental plants. This led him to his second law of genetics, where he said that alleles do what is called assort independently of each other. So his first law is that they segregate independently, but when you consider one, pair of alleles, and when you consider two pair of alleles, they assort independently, meaning that you get new combinations in the F2 generation, short purple and tall white, for instance. Now, Mendel did this with something like 12 different traits of pea plants. He counted hundreds and hundreds of offspring in each case. His original paper published in the Brune Academy of Sciences Proceedings is about 50 pages long, written in the 19th century style. I've had students in my classes read this paper. It's an interesting experience for them. They come to class already knowing genetics, you know. They've been schooled in this from their high school days. And I get them in their upper division courses in molecular biology, and I say, I'm going to make you read Mendel's original paper. 
And they say, oh, we know the results already. We don't have to. And I force them to read it. It's very enlightening for them to see how this 19th century scientist recorded his data and what he actually did. Very different from a modern kind of scientific paper that they're used to reading. So he publishes his work. And in fact, he goes on to do more of the same. He, he works in the monastery for the rest of his life on plant breeding. He repeats his experiments with peas over and over. He tries several other plants, some of which, by the way, don't work as well as peas because they're not as easy to grow. At one time, he has his entire set of experiments wiped out by an infectious disease of the plants. He suffers the life of a typical scientist. At the same time, in the monastery, he becomes the abbot. And when he dies, he's actually the head of the monastery. He dies just before the turn of the century. In his lifetime, his work is never recognized except by a couple of rare individuals who are plant breeders like himself. His papers are sent out to other scientists. Some of them are found in the collections of these scientists unopened years later. So Mendel dies essentially without recognition. So at the beginning of the 20th century, in fact in 1905, a group of experimenters, actually three different groups, are working on plant hybridization again. And they discover the same kind of phenomena that Mendel observed. In fact, by now, they are able to quantitate their discoveries and are doing this routinely. But interestingly, when they looked back in the literature, they did what we'd call today a literature search. They looked back to see if anybody had found anything like this. And all of them suddenly discovered this 1868 paper by Mendel, Gregor Mendel, this monk in Austria who had died not much before this. Can you imagine what would happen if you were in the library and you suddenly found this paper, an obscure journal from Brunn, Austria, from a guy who was a monk in a monastery, and here you were, an early 20th century scientist working on this project? Well, to their credit, they reported it as Mendel's original observations that they had fortunately repeated. And that's why today it is we know this as Mendelian genetics, as opposed to the names of these three groups. Now, what they found at the time and reported was instantly accepted by the scientific community. So the question is, what had happened between 1868 and 1905 that made Mendel's work, which lay in obscurity for 40 years, suddenly acceptable? What had happened was that microscopy had developed to the point where chromosomes were able to be observed. And once we could observe chromosomes and the behavior I described earlier of cells dividing and chromosomes moving apart and going to separate cells and the events of meiosis and all of the things we see in cell division, once we could observe that, suddenly the laws that Mendel wrote began to make sense in terms of physical structures in the cell. So for instance, it could be seen that the behavior of alleles in Mendel's results, say the three to one ratio of allele behavior in the first law of Mendel, actually mimicked the behavior one saw for chromosomes during the formation of gametes and the formation of new individuals. That in other words, the behavior of alleles, the so-called independent segregation, followed the behavior of the structures called chromosomes in these cells. Now, this is why, all of a sudden, at the beginning of the 20th century, Mendel's work could be accepted, because the observations in biology had changed, and now we were ready for the paradigm shift, away from blending inheritance, and into what Mendel called the particulate theory of inheritance. That is, the gene as the particulate unit of inheritance. 
Now with the advent of the beginning of the 20th century then comes the advent of the science we now call genetics. It became a very powerful tool for analyzing systems. Geneticists grew up in communities all over the world. One of the greatest communities of geneticists at the time was a group working at Columbia University with Thomas Hunt Morgan. And Morgan had chosen as his experimental organism not the pea of Mendel, but rather the fruit fly. Now, if you've ever bought bananas at a store and had them sit around for a while, sometimes you see fruit flies, little tiny flies flying around the fruit. This is the fly Drosophila. They picked one particular Drosophila, Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit fly. And it's again got the same characteristics as Mendel's peas, meaning that you could easily manipulate it, you can grow it very simply, you can make defined crosses, you could identify traits, you could identify pure breeding strains, you could quantitate because large numbers of offspring come from each cross. All the properties we saw of the pea are repeated again in the fruit fly. And in fact, the fruit fly in modern biology today is still one of the most important organisms in laboratories around the world for use in studies. Thomas Hunt Morgan and his colleagues worked on the fruit fly from about oh, 1910 into the 30s and 40s. This was a very powerful laboratory for learning about genetics. In fact, it was called the Fly Lab at Columbia. Now, out of the Fly Lab came some important observations. Number one, that for creatures like the fly and ourselves, as distinct from creatures like the pea, there is a kind of inheritance that results in properties where there are male and females as separate species. In the pea plant, there are male and female parts to flowers, but all plants have both parts. Whereas in the fly and in us, there are separate individuals that are male and female. And Thomas Hunt Morgan and his colleagues found that in the fly, inheritance of sexuality is determined by a particular chromosome called the X or the Y chromosome. So males are XY and females are XX. The other important thing that comes out of Morgan's laboratory at the time, and this is the work of one of his students, Sturtevant, was that the gene of Mendel, which is now known to be associated with the behavior of chromosomes, begins to be seen as an actual physical location on the chromosome. Sturtevant was able to show that you could locate chromosomes along the length of this structure that's in the cell, which actually looks like a coiled rope or a strand of rope coil in the cell. He could locate places on that chromosome that he could identify with particular traits of the fly, meaning genes. Sturtevant was able to produce the first genetic maps that is, he could say that the gene for eye color in Drosophila is located at such and such a place on the chromosome relative to the gene for a particular wing shape in Drosophila. This idea of mapping the gene caught fire in the scientific community of the teens and 20s. And the idea that the gene now had a physical location on this thing called chromosome resulted in a shift in thinking about the gene from some mathematical construct which is what Mendel had called it, a unit of inheritance was really in his eyes a mathematical construct, to now the physical reality of something in the cell. Now at the same time Morgan and his collaborators are doing their genetics, another branch of science is growing, the branch called biochemistry. Biochemistry is growing in terms of being able to look at the molecules present in cells and in organisms that make them do what they do. So finding, for instance, enzymes in cells 
Enzymes are simply proteins that catalyze reactions in cells. It's how we do things. When I move my arms like this, it's being catalyzed by a series of enzymes in my muscle cell, which are converting energy into motion. Simple kind of concept. But the molecules that are called enzymes were beginning to be identified at the beginning of this century. And people wondered now, what was the property of these enzymes that related to the inheritance of the cell? And so the field grew up that was called biochemical genetics. Biochemical genetics. Okay. And one of the great achievements of biochemical genetics early on in this process was the identification of enzymes as the products of some genes. So the idea that a gene might be responsible for an enzyme grew up in the early part of the century when a physician noticed that in certain inherited disorders of humans, that is genetic disorders, there was an enzyme that was defective. And he made the link, his name was Garrett, he made the link between the enzyme and the gene. And about the early 40s, an experiment was finally done at Rockefeller University, which came to the idea that every gene, or most genes would we now know, but genes specify a particular enzyme. This is called biochemical genetics now. So by the time the 20th century is sort of under full swing, we're approaching the decade of the 40s, we have genetics developed as a real strong science. Now, in the background of this work on Drosophila that I've talked about is going on an accumulation of information about humans as genetic subjects. Now, notice we have a problem here. With Drosophila and with the P, we could experimentally manipulate the system. Remember our reductionist paradigm. Mendel reduced his pea plant to the simplest thing, one trait differing between the two simplifying the complexity. Morgan did the same thing with fruit flies because he could manipulate his experimental system. When we approach human genetics, however, we have a much more complex system. Humans are not good genetic subjects. They don't obey or don't have all the properties the pea and the fly have. For instance, we have a long generation time. As I said earlier, our generation time is the same length as the experimenters. We don't produce a lot of offspring, so we can't quantify as easily one cross as we can with the pea or the fly. We have, at most, four, five, six children in a generation in one cross, one couple. We don't experimentally manipulate human crosses, meaning that we don't force humans to interbreed, families or whatever. We don't do that. That's against our ethics, against our moral beliefs. So we wouldn't do that. So humans as an experimental subject is a different ball of wax. And yet we have growing up at the same time the science of human genetics, which has to be approached in a very different way than peas, but in an attempt to use the same laws that Mendel laid down, to use the same ideas that Morgan and his colleagues discovered, we began the science of human genetics with the idea of identifying particular genes in humans that are responsible for particular traits and maybe particular enzymes, as we'll see in terms of the biochemistry of the system. Now that backdrop is happening at the same time as this modern science of genetics is taking off. And leading up to the middle part of this century, the science of human genetics is built mainly on observations of family histories. That's really the evidence that one has for how genes are inherited, looking at family histories, or what are called family trees, or more formally, pedigree analysis. 
So we know about some classic examples of human genes such as hemophilia and its relationship to families. We know about genes for colorblindness, for instance, for the same reason. So as this builds into the beginning of this century, human genetics is lagging behind the others because of the experimental difference in the system. Okay? And yet, it is relying on the power of classical genetics, meaning the peas and now Drosophila, for its power. So when a human geneticist says, I have isolated, or I have identified, I should say, a gene for inheritance of a certain trait in humans, it takes on great weight, not because of his own data, because he has quantified it and he has counted enough offspring, but because by implication, humans are obeying the same laws of genetics as the P and Drosophila. So that's what lends the overall weight to the power or to the science of human genetics, is the power of the laws of Mendel and the power of the work with the simpler and more easily manipulable organisms. So that brings us now to the beginning of the middle part of this century, the decade of the 40s of the 20th century. We have, at this time now, genetics developed as a full-fledged science. The experimental organisms are plants, which can be easily manipulated, are flies, which can be manipulated, in some cases simpler organisms such as yeast and mold, which can be grown easily in the laboratory and which have also genetics identical in behavior to the fly and the pea. And behind that, a biochemistry growing about what these genes mean in terms of the intermediary metabolism of those cells. And the time is now set for the development of the next stage in modern biology, which is the birth of molecular biology. So next time, we'll explore the history of molecular biology, the questions about now that we know a gene is located on a chromosome, what is it chemically, and where modern biology derived from historically, and what are some of the paradigms, the setting in which modern molecular biology exists. So next time, we'll explore molecular biology and its history. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.